time stuff that I wish I had. The big time stuff that'll make you mad. The big time stuff. I like the big time stuff. I like the big time stuff that I never had. Today I'm pleased to bring you Dr. Jeff Spencer. Jeff Spencer is a former chiropractor for the U.S. cycling team. So yes, he got a chance to actually uh, work with Lance Armstrong and all of the rest of the folks we've read there. And he's a, a former gold Olympic medal winner. Um, in addition to that, today he runs a very successful coaching practice, lives in Pasadena, and has quite a, bit of, quite a bit of insight about what it takes to be a champion in this world. I hope you'll enjoy Jeff Spencer on today's Market Meditations. <laughs> so, so look, uh, you know, I wanted to bring Jeff to hang out with us today on on the podcast because um, I had a you know I've had uh, maybe three conversations with him now, maybe I, maybe a few when we first met, and then a couple recently, and <clears throat> it struck me on you know just how much um, how much more I still needed to learn about being great, um, and you know obviously it's a a journey and you got to keep focusing on it. But I thought, why not bring, you know, an Olympic middle winner and, you know, just in general, uh, a coach in, in the realm of, um, I think he's built a blueprint for champions and coached, what is it like 30 gold medal winners, Jeff? Uh, I don't know. Pro- I probably they're over 40, I think. Then I stopped counting. So, uh, <laughs> you've got proof of concept in your <laughs> <laughs> Jeff do you mind just sharing um, actually let's go about this differently uh, Chris That's do you mind like sharing it. a little bit about yourself first because both of you know me pretty well why don't you share just a little bit about what you do for your day job and then we'll uh, I'll share just a little bit and then we'll let Jeff jump in. How's that? Oh, gosh. Well, um, my story is fairly straightforward. Like many people, I um, uh, became very interested in investing in business as, as a young person. Had a many jobs, paper routes. I even, uh, in Louisiana, sold turtles. I would get them from <laughs> my... I did not know this. My grandfather had a shrimping boat, and uh, he had these big butterfly nets. <laughs> and, you know, they would catch things other than shrimp. Um, eels and things that weren't very. Is this your grandfather, the doctor? No, no, my mom's okay. dad. Yeah, he your was. A, okay. Yeah, he was a brick mason, and uh, he did a lot of stuff. He was a, a kind of polymath in a very hands-on way. <laughs> so, but he had a shrimp boat, and he was a h- outdoorsman hunter as well. But in shrimp season, he would you know save the turtles that he would catch in his net. For me, and I'd take them to school, and the snapping turtles, which were the meanest ones, garnered the highest price. You know, <laughs> That's funny. Very, yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, that uh, kind of started me off when I realized uh, <laughs> tur- good, turtle yeah. trading is turtle, where it starts. Yeah, yeah, turtle arbitrage, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> well, the arbitrage is 100% no matter what. You didn't yeah, have to pay for them. So. Well, that's true. That's true. But some <laughs> kids would give me box turtles in exchange for... Uh, for snapping turtles. It's like, you know, four to one. <laughs> yeah, four four one. box turtles for yeah. one snapping turtle. That's so funny. <laughs> oh, very interesting. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I um, became interested in investing and that uh, took me a long way. And um, during some time, my father was a pediatrician. I'd work in his office and, you know, um, certain professions have a target on their back for uh, Wall Street salespeople and physicians with an MD degree do as well. So he'd regularly get calls from wirehouses and brokers, and he started deferring for me to pick those calls up in the office, and most of them were shameless promoters. So early on, I figured there must be a better way to deliver real financial advice uh, to real people. Um, And that sort of started me on this journey, Um, and through learning more about investing and great investors, I, uh, not uh, trying to emulate them, but trying to seek what they sought have uh, come to my own levels of success and frustration, but, uh, and success <laughs> and learning. And that has been an ongoing journey. So, uh, and here I have a registered investment advisory firm in Pasadena. Um, oh, we serve. Yeah. Yeah. We've been in business now as an independent firm, 10 years. I'd worked for a few different, uh, 
um, larger firms before, um, starting out on our own. Uh, so I have a business partner and um, we are very lucky to be here in Southern California and in Pasadena mm-hmm. in particular. Good for you. Thank yeah. you so much for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, Jeff, I know you've um, been in, what, nine Tour de France's? Yeah, I did Is nine that- Tour de France. Yeah. <laughs> nine Tour. <laughs> yeah. 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 Jeff, you got to share. I mean, and like, I know there's a lot, but like, that's one of the interesting things that I, I, I didn't know it was quite nine. Um I keep learning more and more about all the cool things you've done. <laughs> so it's okay if we take a few minutes to talk about it. Um, I don't really see it as bragging as much as just kind of sharing all the cool things and us getting a chance to, you know, choose one of those to dive in off of. Oh, yeah. Well, I guess one memorable thing is that my first cycling championship when I was 13, it was back in New York and I traveled there from California and um, I won every race in the national championship and I got the silver medal. And so that was just an amazing experience. So obviously you can see that something's wrong with the math there, right? Mm -hmm. So I got disqualified in one race because there was a crash and the head judge disqualified me that enabled his nephew to win the national championship. So that was my first brush with, um, should we say, uh, uh, some challenging aspects of uh, playing a high stakes game. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess another highlight, you know, for sure was uh, having two very creative parents. My father was uh, an artistic genius, literally, uh, but he died homeless. I found out 30 years a- later after seeing him for the last time when I was 13. And that taught me a very valuable lesson that will and talent aren't enough. There's something, but they're not enough. They're not what makes the difference or something else that does. And um, I was fortunate to have uh, two really important mentors in my life that uh, uh, were angels put into my life at critical times. My first one was my cycling coach at 13. And he was a five-time national champion, three-time Olympian. And he taught me how to win, which is quite interesting. He said, you need to be a great human being first and an athlete second. And you need to know the art of winning more than just trying harder and he shared with me how to do that and that was invaluable and then my second mentor i met when i was 18 and he was 76 and he chose me to be his apprentice uh, to the glass masterpieces that uh, he was creating literally and uh, it it, during the breaks of uh, my apprenticeship to him he would read me poetry he would read me philosophy he would play classical music to me, he would talk to me about the great novels of history. And he said, I need to fill you up on this stuff. And and I had the ability to absorb that. So we had this kind of unusual composite starting to form. I was very artistic. I was apprenticing to um, a glass master while I was training to become an Olympian. When I hear glass master, I think Chihuly. Is that the kind of stuff you were doing? Yeah. 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 I, I actually showed at the same level as Dale. So my work was comparable to his, but it wasn't on that scale. I was a, a one-man band, so to speak. So to say the quality of work that I did in my genre, uh, in his was the same. So we showed at the same national shows together. Um, and uh, I was also a student at the University of Southern California where I was studying sports science. So there was this interesting composite that was taking place. And the sum total of that is that I had a unique perspective about the whole world of human performance and the uh, athletes wanted to win, you wanted to win gold medals and the professional athletes wanted to make millions and they thought that I could help them because I was an Olympian and I knew the art and the science of uh, creating personal greatness and the business people knew that they had to become their own champions that they were going to be successful in business so they bought they both sought out my experience to help craft them into becoming their own champions, like which I did. But there was another twist to this is that the athletes wanted to extend their careers. And the best way to do that is to make sure that you don't get injured or you get back quickly. And then the business people said to me, well, look, uh, just between you and I, my same age counterparts in their early 40s are all dropping dead of heart attacks. I kind of don't want to do that. Can you help me avoid that? So I said, yeah, I'll go back to school. And which I did, and uh, I got my chiropractic licensure in wellness care and acute trauma. 
which allowed me to then be uh, a primary healthcare provider to work with my clients, not only in terms of crafting their mindsets and their abilities to produce greatness consistently, but to also stay in the game long enough to amass a legacy that truly represented their capacity. So that was uh, another kind of blessing side to it. And the composite of those experiences is that I became a bit of a master in the whole, meaning that I can understand what it takes to craft greatness in all of its nuanced uh, requirements and in working with people rather than having 10 experts, they could have me look at the totality of their life experience, where they've been, where they are, how they think, what that means. And then we could craft a path forward, the smoothest path forward to consistently and repeatedly uh, achieve their most important goals. So that's kind of what the path was. And that ability allowed me to uh, be shuttled around on Richard Branson's Island by him and his private golf cart, you know, there being of service to him and others and being, you know, at Tiger Woods, uh, advising him on a variety of different things, uh, being with Lance at all seven of his Tour de France victories. And so it's really led to a very rich and expansive um, experience advising some of the most prolific achievers of our era on how to get to the top and how to stay there. So that's the Cliff Notes version of kind of where I've been. And um, I would just finally say that my crowning achievement, though, was the adoption of our daughter about 10 and a half years ago from Columbia at the age of 10, which is a very unusual adoption because most people consider older kids to be damaged goods, so they don't adopt them. Hmm. And we did. And uh, I can honestly say that it's the hardest thing I've ever done. A, a thousand times harder than becoming an Olympian, but also the most rewarding. And though my wife cried every day for nine years and nine months, it was so difficult. About a year and a half, she stopped crying. And right now, I'm proud to say that my daughter, despite not speaking English when we adopted her and we not speaking Spanish and her not having any school and PTSD and ADHD from severe physical and mental cruelty for her first 10 years, she just completed her junior year in college. So again, uh, that's the experience. That's the path, and uh, you know, here I am now. <laughs> Jeff, thank you. That's uh, yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, thank you very much. It's a great story. You know, I um, hear you often talk about uh, honor and honoring our best selves. Yes, and that we have a moral obligation, really, to use our talents to the highest level we can. I do believe that. I I know that's a, a very deeply felt belief, and uh, that you hold. Is that sort of the core? I mean, I've started many projects and uh, had many goals, which I've given up on. <laughs> I um, think you talked about some of the great athletes you've helped uh, to coach along the way, including being there with Lance Armstrong and Tiger Woods. And is this something you see in in those people as well? Is this sort of a the core that allows you to function? Um, and move higher and higher along this path without uh, throwing in the towel? Well, I think people have different motivations as to why they pursue certain goals. But, you know, for me, there has to be an honorable pursuit, meaning that, you know, first off, uh, to, to build uh, our uh, God-given assets that we have and our skill level to be able to showcase and honor those gifts. I feel that that's part of why we're here. Uh, on this planet, knowing that there's only one of us in all of creation, there's uh, not going to be another Chris or another Neil or another Jeff. And we all have a unique capacity to create a life of distinction and value, but also of contribution. And also why that's important is that when we produce excellence, it's not only honoring the privilege, but it's also showcasing to others that uh, living a life of, of value and quality and connection uh, is possible. And in today's world, we're having less and less evidence of that. And when we execute that and we do that and people can see it, then it keeps them in belief that they can also be a, a manifesto of their potential and uh, live a life of tranquility of being as a result of honoring that and also developing the skills to be confident that uh, they can choose the right goals and that they can manifest those things that they're called uh, to manifest 
And um, as I told my daughter, ever since we adopted her and she didn't even uh, speak English, every time she left the door to go to school, I said, don't be average. And I, I said that to her because I didn't want her to, I wanted her neurology to get used to something that would have greater meaning to her later and knowing that nobody in her family ever graduated from junior high school, um, let alone having aspirations of any higher levels of achievement. And that's the way I feel about everybody. You know, as being an Olympian, I, I really experienced what it was like to play at my full potential athletically. And even though I don't really work in the athletic world now, it's all in business. To me, it's the same thing. When you know you're coming from your highest self, uh, you know that you're, again, uh, transforming all those that you're in the presence of by, again, you know, demonstrating a, a commitment to, to something of significance and value. And, you know, when I was dying from mercury poisoning about 20 years ago, I realized that the only thing that I was going to take with me is what I gave others. And mm. the only thing I was going to be remembered by is what I did give them. And to just go back to my daughter here for a second is that if you don't think what you do and what you say matters, just adopt a kid because they hang on your every word, especially when they've never been hugged and never been loved. And what I've learned from that is that we have to make a conscious decision every day about how we're going to show up for people mm -hmm. uh, because how we show up does matter. And had people showed up for my daughter differently, she wouldn't have the severe trauma that she didn't ask for. She would not have been exposed to that. And she wouldn't have the challenge of having to address that in addition just to the normal difficulties that we all have just by being alive and creating <laughs> being adolescents. Yeah. That's what I mean. You know, <laughs> yeah. so yeah. I I do believe very strongly in that. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Um, Jeff, you mentioned something that's pretty interesting to me. You mentioned, you know, the right goal, having the right goal. How does one know if their goals are the right goals? There's a lot, there's all sorts of different types of goals. There's big, hairy, audacious goals. There are moonshots. There's small goals, there are aspirational goals, there are stretch goals, there are smart goals. But in the high performance world of sports, business, and entertainment, it's essential to have the right goal because uh, when we have the right goal, we have an alignment of mind, body, and soul. And when we have that, we have a very special type of focus that I call GOCUS that allows us to hyper-focus on stuff in front of us and get things done while simultaneously having a peripheral awareness of better options occurring in our periphery that could take us to a bigger goal faster that we could never have conceived of if we're hyper-focused. And it also allows us to see blindsides forming that can unnecessarily take us out of the game. And that's why right goals are important, so much so that I've actually created a criteria that we can challenge goals that we're aspiring to against to make sure that we have the right goal. Every letter in the word right stands for something. The R and right is relevant. How relevant is the goal that we're pursuing? The I is indicators. You know, What are the indicators that this is the right goal in terms of value to us, impact on others, impact on our legacy, impact on our finances, impact on our discretionary time? The G stands for gravity, you know, are we, and have we been called to this goal or is it just something we're pursuing for self-interest reasons? Uh, the H in right stands for height. Does this goal that I'm pursuing have enough altitude and value to it to resonate with who I am to call me to a bigger game? And then the T in right stands for time. Is it the right time to pursue the goal? Do we have time to pursue the goal? And is the time to goal completion acceptable to us? And I honestly do feel, Chris, is that people have a very casual relationship to their goals. Mm -hmm. And uh, I feel that because they're casual, they don't quite have the intimacy and conviction and persistence to do what it takes to get through the difficult periods of any goal that you will encounter that's aspirational. Uh, so much so that in addition to the right goal, I've actually created an entire model on how it is from goal inception to goal completion. We prepare ourselves to systematically 
get from start to finish in the least uh, difficult way possible. Hmm. So well, that's why, to me, right goals are essential. Well, so without trying to oversimplify it, because it, you know, it sounds like you take a lot of things into consideration with thinking about a goal. I still don't know how I even describe to my mom after today whether she's got the next right goal or not. Well, if you had the right goal criteria, you could have her tell you the answer as to why this goal is relevant. And if she can't defend its relevance, or she can't tell you the indicators and the value that it brings to her, or she can't tell you the gravity or magnetism between you between her and it, if she can't tell you that it's a big enough goal to excite her mind, body, and soul, if she can't tell you that it's the right time or if she has the time to do it, or whether or not the time to completion is acceptable, then I'm not sure that you really want to necessarily start the goal because you're not going to have a lot of assurance that you can actually get to where you want to go. And to Chris's point, if people had spent the time to look at it, then they may not talk themselves out of or even begin to pursue goals in the first place that they find themselves ultimately abandoning. So again, I, I feel that it's a responsible action to take just to ensure that you're not trying to talk yourself into something that you may eventually abandoning because we didn't take the time to vet it correctly. And yeah. only your mother and only your mother can answer that question. She we don't have your mother's answer, but we can certainly expose her to a line of questioning that would allow her with more certainty to confirm to you, yes, Neil, this is the right goal. I saw that I was just guessing at this and what I was thinking it would be isn't it at all. I'm glad that you took the time to make me take another look at this. Or, hey, thank you, Neil. This fortifies my uh, belief and conviction from thinking it's the right goal. I know it's now the right goal without any reasonable doubt. Hmm. You know, um, Jeff, you've mentioned or talked about in the past, and you even sort of gave the comment here that most people fail or uh, give up on goals because they take them too lightly. And you've talked about having an intimate relationship with a goal. And um, is that intimate relationship with a goal something that happens naturally when it's the right goal? Is it something you still must cultivate um, if you have clarity and that goal's aligned with your mind, body, and soul, it, um, is it something that naturally occurs that you just have a deeper sense with it, uh, a more intimate well, relationship? <clears throat> well, I, I think you will have an intimate relationship with it, but it doesn't mean that you're not going to be challenged by it in circumstances. I mean, there are many points along the road for me to becoming an Olympian, the 10 years that I devoted to it where I knew I could do it, but there were moments of doubt, for sure. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't give us a free pass on the human experience, but it does allow us to default back to and ask ourselves the question about our core belief. And if we have a structure to hold the gold in that can help us stay connected to the truth of what it is, then it becomes a lot easier to push through the difficult moments. But if we have a casual relationship with it, then the doubts that we have can amplify upon themselves to a point where we could talk ourselves out of it just before the breakthrough that we've been waiting for. And I see this all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Do you still set a number of goals for yourself regularly? I have a, a variety of different goals. You know, there, there's the grunt work goals, taking the trash out, and doing the basic <laughs> yeah. task of life. We, you know? we all have those. <laughs> 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 Can't these just go away? Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I, I do. And I, I feel what's important is that we, uh, we choose goals that are within our reach that are necessary for us to gain the skills to aspire to more lofty goals. I feel that we need to... Uh, set for ourselves some goals that we may think are difficult to achieve, if not impossible, to test ourselves against our presumption. But they shouldn't be of high consequence where 
we're putting too much at risk in terms of time, resources, et cetera, but they could be aspirational enough for us to develop another level of confidence in ourselves by doing something that we hadn't done before. And I think quite honestly, all of us do suffer uh, a certain amount of confidence, uncertainty at certain moments in our lives that uh, we need to challenge and we need to find ways beyond it to continue to develop skills that we can rely on that we know that are there for us to help us move forward in situations that may be difficult. I just feel that that's, again, part of the honor ritual of life is stepping into things of that magnitude, because as much as we think that we want an easy life, we really don't, because the mind, body, and soul, the, the plore sameness, you know, and they kind of beg for novelty, they beg for challenge. And when we are continually in pursuit reasonably with enough average goals and appropriate lofty goals that cause us to reach, I think that keeps us engaged, it keeps us vital, it keeps us on purpose, it gives us hope in a bigger future, it gives us confidence in our skills, it showcases to our family and to our kids what's possible, it creates trust with us and peers. There's a lot of reasons for doing that. Jeff, you mentioned that, um, well, that you had two mentors, and I think, of course, you'll agree there's a third, your adopted daughter. Yeah, for sure. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. And, well said, Chris. You know, the, the, the things you uh, mentioned about how that was one of, uh, if not the toughest program you subscribed yourself to, I'd like to ask, you know, what was the the difference between, I mean, you're an Olympian and certainly there's no easy path to climb that <laughs> mountain. Um, and of course you're beset with doubts along the way. Uh, in this case, when you uh, adopted your daughter, um, the severity of those challenges you mentioned uh, felt greater and yet you still persevered. Um, what were those qualitative differences and, you know, um, how were you challenged in parenting in ways you weren't as an athlete? Uh, parenting as an athlete, I was left alone with my own accountability. I was responsible for a 10 year investment uh, in the possibility of my odds were 186 million to one that I could become an Olympian. And if I didn't, I was still accountable for those 10 years, but I was really only accountable to myself in a sense. But when you're, uh, I was 58 at the time we adopted our daughter, who was 10. Most people thought I was crazy. Um, why would I want to do that? You know, when I was at the height of my career, making a lot of money, you know, in the limelight. But you know, the Olympic, uh, the Olympian in me, you take your cues from different places. And for me, uh, I want to be known as the guy that. When you're called into duty and you're called to service and you get the calling, you show up and you get the job done. That's what the Olympics was. It's like I didn't choose it; it chose me. And I showed up and I did what had to get done to op, you know, to honor that opportunity, and it worked out well. And uh, this was the same, you know, gravity that it was a calling that was uh, completely um, understood for what it was and. But when you're dealing with a wife that cries every day, just imagine going to work and having to perform your work, your duties, and you come home and your wife is sitting there in the bed crying her eyes out every day for nine years and nine years and nine months because it's so difficult. The lying, the cheating, the deceit. You know, my daughter was raised as a criminal. You do whatever you got to do to survive. You lie, you cheat, whatever. You know, you don't want to be the person left standing when musical chairs goes off. But, but I want to say something here is that I knew that my daughter didn't ask to be raised like that. That was something that was imposed upon her. So I didn't really look at that as really her. It was something that she would have to grow out of, but she couldn't grow out of it by herself. It's, that was my job as her father to nurture her along, to break the chains of her past. It would be impossible for her to break herself. And you know, being an Olympian, uh, you don't really think about uh, winning a bronze medal. You know, you think about gold, and if you win bronze, you're grateful for that, but you don't go in with the idea of winning a bronze. And it's like, 
we adopted our daughter into our life and into our world. And it was our job to finish the job because that's what you do. You make a deal, you finish the job. And so, yeah, I was used to working with very talented, very precocious people, crafting out the, their genius and brilliance to become iconic. And so my daughter met her match in me because I was used to dealing with talented people that were quirky. And because of my commitment to her, and uh, uh, it was not difficult for me to stay in the game. So it went something like this, is that when I realized that we have a daughter here in the US that speaks no English and we didn't speak Spanish, she has no school and she's 10. She has severe PTSD and ADHD from the severe mental and physical abuse. She has a parasitic ridden body. Um, she's almost lost her permanent teeth. She has every risk factor known to humanity as a 20 on a scale of one, that this is going to be formidable. So what I did, first, there was no choice in my decision because you, there are moments in time where you either step into that that's part of what it is that you did kind of ask for that you don't step away from. So I immediately that day, I cut my uh, work schedule by 90%. 90% of my income was gone in one day because of what I had to do to raise my daughter. So what I learned from doing this is that I, I learned several things. I learned, number one, you could love anybody. You don't need a special reason to do it. You just show up and you do it. The second thing I learned is that you have to have implicit trust in the process because uh, my wife and I and her were on survival every day for nine and three quarters years. Just getting through a day was its own miracle. That there has to be an explicit trust in process where you're not going to hold something out for what you think that you may need later. Whatever you got to do right now to get through now is what you do. So what it does, it, it takes your reliance on, you know, whatever you have stuck away in the safe deposit box, you, you don't think of that as a, as a plan B. You know, you step into whatever it is, it has to go right, and there's an implicit trust that everything's gonna work out, and if it doesn't, that's the way it goes. You still have to do what you have to do. I, I also learned that my constitution is, is I don't barter for what I'm gonna get for what I do. It's like, I'm not gonna be a half dad to get what I think that I should get. It's like, I'm going to be a full dad. And if I don't get anything in return, that's okay, because that's not what the bargain was for. So no bartering, you know, on that one. And I learned that um, you could do anything on behalf of someone, but where energy consumption is in scarce supply is that when everything you do is about your own self-interest and for your own advantage, that's where energy becomes fragile. You know, I always had enough energy to do whatever was necessary on behalf of my daughter. And I, I wouldn't trade that experience for anything because uh, it, it taught me, I wouldn't say a Spartan lifestyle because I was already living that, but just to say, again, I, I've learned through that, that there's always a best path forward. You can love anybody. Um, the other thing I'll say about this, and this is really important just in a business context is that, you know, there's going to be tough moments and difficult moments. And when you're in those difficult moments, you can't forget who you are at a core fundamental level. Uh, and there are times in any business where things go south, where you start to question yourself and doubt yourself and face the embarrassment of facing others, maybe even reading about yourself in the newspaper. Uh, you know, that's difficult, but when you have something that's so sustained, it's so difficult, you learn that a place that you have to go to is to remember who you are and what you stand for and what you're capable of. And on the other side of that, you come out equal to or, or better than you were than you went into it because you kind of really honored who you knew yourself to be and you came from that place. And that's why that was such a valuable experience to me. You know, certainly one of the reasons why I'm so successful working with my clients because, you know, that experience matched with the Olympics, matched with the Tour de France, matched with all the other stuff that I've done is given me a 360 degree view of what life really is. And with that, being able to craft the fastest path, smoothest path forward to get to where we want to go. And, you know, now that I'm 69 
I don't know what that's supposed to look or feel like, but um, I feel like some of my best work is is in front of me. Yeah, that's great, Jeff. That's beautiful. I mean, the oh, thank you, the deep well of uh, compassion, yeah. and the recognition that um, you know in the in the Buddhist teachings they say that there are. <laughs> Certain unlimited characteristics, um, uh, Mahametri, the unlimited capacity we have to love. Hmm. That, For sure. That, that there's no limit to how much you can so cultivate true. and grow. That's true. So true. In that space. So um, true. Yeah. And it certainly seems that you've, uh, in, in your early mentorship, <clears throat> had this uh, recognition. I talked a little bit about the honor before, but also that great compassion that uh, you had in recognizing and really understanding, um, which comes from true love, what your daughter had gone through and why she showed up the way she did. Yeah. I'm sure I'm certain that's a, uh, a tendency that helps you tremendously with your clients. <laughs> it, it does. I mean, it's, it's, it's its own gift. Uh, yeah. Another thing I learned from this, Chris, is that, you know, there's an essential rite of passage that that everybody has to go through. That's difficult, and it's uh, not something that you can get over in a week or two. But you know, there's something deeper in all of us that begs to get out. That's our best work, and is also of our best service to to others. But if a life is too good, you're never going to ask a set of questions that will take you to a space where you even start to contemplate options to the way that you're living or what you're faced with. And uh, I would just say that, um, again, when life is too good, it's impossible to ask a set of questions. It's necessary to connect with the deepest part of us that can be our greatest contribution because there's no reason to even begin to ask those questions because mm -hmm. we're too busy thinking about our next car or next vacation or whatever. <laughs> there you have it. <laughs> so you you're saying it's harder to yeah. have yeah. bigger aspirations if you're the son of a billionaire. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. Um, one of our former guests, Steve Reed, was telling me uh, the worst thing you can do is is leave lots of lots of money to your children because it it might ruin their drive. <laughs> yeah, totally. I believe that. It's interesting you say that, Neil, because. Um, you know, when we adopted our daughter, I, I, I said to her when she could barely speak English, I said, um, you know, there's three things I want you to know is that you're always going to have enough to eat because, you know, there were moments that she confided in me that she had terrible hunger pains from starvation. And what she did, she used to uh, pull gum off the bottom of seats and chew the gum that people had stuck there and there were times when she actually you know, pulled the gum off of streets, gritty streets of rural Columbia and chewed the gum to stave off the hunger pains. And so I said that to her because I didn't want her to worry. You know, her abdomen was distended from the parasitic ridden body that she had at the time. And I said, I'm never going to let you down because her family, her culture, her country let her down and she had no anchor you know, and I needed to tell her that I would be that anchor. She may not believe me, but uh, she would find out in time that that was true. And then the third thing I told her, I said, you know, even though you've had a tough life, kid, if anybody deserves a break, it's you, but you got to earn your place on the team. So no free gifts, no free passes. And so um, even today, she works two jobs. She's... Uh, just completed her schoolwork recently here last week, finishing up the semester. So we've always stayed very vigilant about making sure that she remains grounded in self-sufficiency and that uh, she be continually, you know, reminded of the, the blessing of what we share as a family because she is a master manipulator. I mean, that's raised as a criminal. That's you have what to you, be on the street. Of, yeah. That's what you do, man. <laughs> you know? Survive, I imagine, yeah. So, you know, the point I wanted to speak to is what you so appropriately said that, um, you know, we had to kind of protect her from her own 
genius of shortcutting everything at the expense of relationships and you know her connecting with her true genius and being able to come from that place as she's beginning to manifest interesting very loving approach i you know i guess that's all we really all need in life and you're able to explain to her that uh you were going to give those things to her and then you were showing love i think the other important part yeah so yeah well thank you you know it's it's, it's amazingly how easy it is when you're doing it on behalf of someone else and you know it's i think about kids you know there's i mean quite honestly things i do for my daughter that i wouldn't even do for myself that that she's imposed and awakened me to that i kind of needed to see and needed to hear so i i as chris said i owe her an eternal debt of gratitude and for the opportunity to self-reflect and you know raise my game in the process of you know raising her i feel truly like we're the lucky ones you know, I wonder if um, we, we switch gears a little bit. Um, I'd love to hear the story a little bit about how you ended up uh, as the team doc for, um, you know, all the Tour de France's. Yeah, great. So um, <clears throat> I helped uh, a cyclist win a gold medal. The, the first person I helped win a gold medal in 1984. And he was a cyclist and he was very well aware of my skill Um in terms of you know crafting a body and a mind that were capable of peak performance consistently and predictably and repeatedly and one of his ambitions was to create uh, a winning tour de france team and uh you know he and i uh, we didn't completely lose contact with each other but we were both pursuing our own lives independently after that gold medal in 84 and we reacquainted uh later uh, in the mid 90s when he actually did have a team and we had talked uh, at that time about having me come on and bringing kind of my dimension to the team that was not currently in professional cycling. And we eventually were able to make that happen. And um, it was when Lance came back from cancer. And, uh, you know, he was an unknown commodity after the cancer. And that's how I got brought onto the team. And my job description, they had several medical doctors, so it wasn't really in the medical doctor side of things. But... It was really in, in creating the recovery uh, processes and mending the bodies and the minds every day after the brutal stages uh, at the Tour de France. Um, and that's how I got involved in it. And, uh, you know, trust me, Lance does not have anybody on the team just because he likes them. you got to prove your merit. And I was uh, one of three people that did all seven of Lance's tours with him. And uh, some of the most important experiences of all because I've always considered the Tour de France to be the ultimate life clinic because it's so difficult. You're you're racing six hours a day in blistering heat, freezing snow, rain or shine. You put on your clothes and you go to work and you're consuming 10,000 calories a day and you're still losing weight. You may climb 30,000 vertical feet in a day, which is the height of a pilot of a 747. Wow. Injured or sick, you get up and you go to work and uh, it's horrific because uh, the severe strain that it puts on the mind and body and kind of really the saving uh, grace of that for me is that I always felt it was the ultimate life clinic because you're going to experience in 21 days everything that you're going to experience in life, but you have to find a right way to engage and surpass it if it's a liability. You don't have the luxury of going home and sleeping it off or not getting it right for your teammates. I felt... Uh, really fortunate and that was uh, another area that i did you know nine tours over 13 years that really crafted you know my mind and my capability to be able to uh, help prolific achievers grow into their talent and manifest legacies that they were capable of because of what i learned and what i contributed at those tours did you read poetry to the Tour de France <laughs> team, like your well, seventy-six-year-old mentor. Well, I did speak softly when I needed to. Touche, <laughs> <laughs> Chris. That was perfect, man. Chris won Spencer zero. You know, in listening to you, Jeff, I I did think, um, you know, in in all of the training that. Uh, all of us who are attempting at high achievement 
go through, um, all the snippets we gather. Are there any consistencies that you see among these high performers that uh, are really almost always on display? I mean, I, for example, once read that, um, you know, there was a study across many high performers, especially in individual sports and small team sports. So they looked at, you know, Michael Jordan in the NBA and um, uh, Andre Agassi and uh, Tiger Woods. And uh, one of the things that I remember reading very vividly is the self-talk of these top performing athletes. It was always very encouraging. Like in speaking to themselves, if he missed a free throw, Michael would say, come on, Michael, you can do better. Like he was speaking to a teammate Mm -hmm. um, in a very supportive fashion. Are there any things like that that you saw across the board that uh, really gave you uh, an idea of this is uh, a facet of all the high performers? Well, there are certain things that we can say that are absolutely predictive of uh, someone that can stay in the game long enough to evolve their highest capacity, but also take that capacity and ride that wave for as long as possible. And the first thing is uh, the champion's golden rule is you do the homework and the test is easy, meaning that, <laughs> you know, it's self-evident, right? <laughs> So they, Which they taught me that in junior high. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> it took me a while to learn that lesson. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, again, if you're well prepared, you trust your preparation, you let that do the performance for you. And it's ultimately all about preparation. And uh, again, the people that prepare well are the ones that are confident and they're the ones that trust in their preparation to execute and win the gold medal for them. That's certainly the... Also, the idea of a team. No one wins alone, for sure. Mm-hmm. And there has to be a team that can do for us what we can't do for ourselves. But the, the collective capacity of the team allows the exponential to happen beyond the sum of the parts. So team plays a, an absolutely essential role in that. Um, also, uh, pacing. Don't try to expect too much of yourself too soon, because if you do, you're going to talk yourself out of a great career. It takes time to evolve yourself to a point where you can play at your potential. And you don't want to blow yourself up before you get there, because if you do, then you're not going to be able to create your best legacy. And I see that all the time. People, too much, too hard, way too fast. Mm. Uh, that's for sure. Um, and that does fit into the mindset. Uh, you know, the, the true champions, they know that they can only achieve what they have the skill and the planning and the execution to be able to achieve. You you can't take yourself to a place that you can't get to unless you prepared well and you have the assets and the skills to make it happen. And they're, they're very clear on that. Is that Jeff, then a a sense that um, your circle of competence becomes much clearer to you as you develop and prepare? Yes, and you can actually uh, compress that learning uh, curve by advisory. And that's like what I do for my clients. Uh, Only Mm -hmm. I can, I know where they are and I know what that means. I know what we need to do to move forward. And so in that, we can have conversations about what they need to do now to maximize what they're going to need for now and for later. Like I was talking with someone yesterday, I said, well, you can either take 20 years to do that if you want to do it yourself and challenge your assumptions against reality or we can work together and I can show you how to shortcut that and maybe get it done in two because I can show you what history tells us about where you are and what's coming and we can avoid the preventable problems and take the the smoothest uh, path to the victory circle. So again, the answer to that would be yes. So having the right advisors that can advise us correctly in specific areas to shortcut our learning and develop our confidence in our capacity is uh, an absolute necessity. Jeff, one of the things I've, I, um, I actually uh, listen quite a bit to the uh, Michael Gervais Finding Mastery podcast. I don't know if you've Yeah, that's a great one. He's, he's a great guy. I, I, I quite enjoy it. And the thing, there was an episode with Toto Wolf, the uh, head of the F1 Mercedes team. Um, and you know, he starts the episode or podcast by saying like, you know, high performers, um, all the high performers he'd met generally had something go wrong in their past in a major way. 
um, in order to be high performers. And uh, a psychologist friend of mine actually recently got a chance to, to ask him about that. And he said, I actually still don't know where to put that or you know, how to completely frame a conversation about that. But is that a trend you tend to agree with? And can you share a little bit more about that? Yeah, thanks. So I think for, you know, first and foremost, uh, a characteristic of this is that many people don't come from privilege. You know, they've had things not done for them, but they've had to learn to be resourceful and, and accountable to themselves and have the self-start gene. And I think a lot of that is where, we're, where we find ourselves in early development uh, cultivates a certain side of that, where we developed our street smarts, should I say, and our resourcefulness if somebody isn't there to always save us and do everything for us or to try to monitor us too much. So, yeah, I would say that there's something to that, but also you know what you're fighting for. You know, you're fighting to take yourself to a place beyond where you currently are that may not be who you are, but you may not have asked for it, but you do have an option and an alternative to move yourself beyond it. So I would say that that's one characteristic that does seem to be uh, present. I would say that... Uh, Having some level of difficulty also help allows you to place a value on things that you took for granted. In, until things are taken away from us, we can't exactly do that. You know, therefore, a certain level of challenge that you described uh, there, Neil, I think is an essential ingredient because it places a value on things, but it also clearly showcases is that at the end of the day, you know, we're the ones that turn the pedals to our own bicycle, and it's going to be up to us to be able to lead the charge towards our bigger future. And if you need help getting motivated, then you better look and do something else. If, uh, <laughs> you know, simply put, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. so uh, I, what he's saying is correct. And I, I interesting you say this because I had this conversation with this guy today in New York City. Um, and you know, we were discussing the uh, the merits of of effort, and um, you know, my points. He was a a PR executive in uh, in New York City, and I was telling him that you know, unless you have the self start gene, it's impossible for you to become what you can be, because you don't trust yourself enough in your abilities. It probably rightly so, because you probably don't have what you need to be able to make that happen. And that's why I think it's a lot better to have it a bit harder earlier in life to figure it out so you do have an appreciation coming into it and you have a reference for value. And you'll also fight for your bigger future when you have a sense of uh, what it's like to, to live without excessively. And what I was saying to the executive, I said that literally billions of dollars are spent a year on talent where there's been no vetting of the talent. You know, let's say a business spends, well, let's take a lawyer. A law firm is going to spend a million dollars over the five years to cultivate a lawyer into a point where they start making money for the firm. But, but what guarantee do you have that that person can actually do that? You know, a Harvard pedigree is not a guarantee of that. There's got to be something outside of that that we can look at and we can confirm that they have what it takes to reduce the risk on that. You know, and it's exactly the same thing in sports. I'll bet you there's easily a billion dollars a year spent or actually wasted on talent that can't possibly manifest itself because the vetting of the athletes as humans and how they think has not been thoroughly enough done. So again, this does come back to what you were saying there, Neil, is that are there certain indicators that we should look at to take it of as being real? And I'm saying, yes, there are. Are they being done? I, I don't see the evidence that they're being done with the level of scrutiny that they should be done to protect one's investment. Jeff, as part of your work, do you um, build a process or help executives think through that as they're evaluating talent? A hundred percent. Because to me, if you hear a person talking like this, you can, you can actually guarantee how they're going to solve problems. So for me, like in that space, um, you know, executive performance is one of my specialties. And the conversations that I have with the CEOs that I work with is very directly about that. Had that conversation yesterday. Person's uh, 
got actually a, an investment firm in Vancouver, BC, and we were talking about this very thing. And I said to him, well, because you're telling me this, that means that this person will make a decision in this way that means that in X amount of time, you will have difficulty with this because they don't have what it takes to address this when it surfaces later. So you have to challenge this now to make sure that you have a contingency for it or that you adjust and adapt up and through it to, to limit your risk and your liability. So that's what I do really well. And I do that because I've been so many places in my career and, you know, being older, I've been through a complete pass in life. And unless you've been through a complete pass of life, then you can't really understand what all the variables are. So there's still a certain amount of guessing and presumption about what you think it to be as being it. <laughs> yeah. And so if you right. want to play roulette, go ahead. <laughs> <You know? laughs> the answer is yes, of course. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Fascinating conversation. We we really. I don't know, Chris. If you have any more questions um, today, I'm sure we could talk to Jeff. You know, no, I'm six um, or seven hours. Feel like we're just getting started, you guys. It's just been wonderful. <laughs> no, it's just been a wonderful. It's such a deep well of uh, knowledge that you carry, and a lot of great information, Jeff. And of course, I'm deeply honored to have had you share with us what you know and what you've experienced and what you see out in the world. I really do appreciate it. Well, that comes through loud and clear, Chris. The, the yeah. questions and just the line of conversation has been just absolutely extraordinary. And, you know, thank you so much for having trust in me and in my journey to share with you some of the lessons that I've learned. And, and if I could just kind of sign off by saying one thing here is that, you know, there's only one of us in all of creation. And I think about that. And there's 7 billion people on this planet right now. And there's only one Chris. There's only one Jeff. There's only one Neil that allows us to look at life in our own unique and distinct way that nobody else does. And I would just encourage everybody to, to be mindful of that unique opportunity and to spend the time to cultivate and grow and acquire the necessary talents and environment that will allow us to, uh, in a profound way, uh, live a life showcasing that in, in aspiring to goals that, uh, that we're called to. Um, and there's always room at the top for the best, and we kind of decide what that is. And uh, just would ask everybody to just, you know, really cherish your uniqueness and, and cultivate that and, and showcase that out without apology to, to humanity. Without apology. That's it. Thank you, Jeff. Thank You're you. So welcome. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. Hey, Jeff, Thank before you, you go, Jeff, before you go, where can people find you? Oh, thanks. There are a couple of ways here. Um, you could certainly, uh, um, actually, I, I have a PDF that people may be interested in. It's uh, called How Not to Blow It Just Before You Win. Um, <laughs> 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 just please get this and read it before you need it. And <laughs> you could get that by going to drjeffspencer.com, like D-R-J-E-F-F-S-P-E-N-C-E-R.com forward slash the number one dr jeff spencer.com forward slash one like the number one and you'll get that pdf if you'd like to uh, reach out to me personally would love to hear from you you can uh, send me an email at jeff at dr jeff spencer.com thank you so much everybody love you to pieces all right thank yeah. you very much thank Thanks. you see you, everybody take care bye, bye now bye. Yeah. This this may sound really odd. I don't know if I've told uh, you this, Chris. I learned a lot about investing from my tangerine tree. Ah. And what did your yeah? There's a there's a good book for even for children. Yeah, I guess I I can summarize it this way. You know, like I went through phases where I just wanted to pick all the tangerines all at once, mm -hmm. and I realized that enjoying the tangerine a little earlier in the season when it's still a little tart is nice. Um, you know, and throughout its entire maturity um, until, you know, uh, it's just starting not quite to shriveling, but right there. Hmm. Um, and I enjoyed the tangerines more with the, you know, palette of flavors or rainbow of flavors, however you want to say that. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought about, you know, how, and then, you know, at the same time, I thought about liquidity 
a little bit in my first company. And, you know, I thought like actually one of the very best things to do is to, you know, be able to enjoy the beginning, middle and end of just things in general, hmm. um, rather than rush to pick all of the tangerines on the first day or on a Sunday or something. Mm-hmm. You know, Thich Nhat Hanh does a whole Dharma talk on eating a tangerine in mindfulness. <laughs> So he encourages you to, yeah, even in peeling the tangerine gracefully and eating it just one section at a time. That's because, how you do uh, that with pe- peanut M and M's. Yeah, there are many things I guess we could make a corollary of this with. 